Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Take a seat. Happy Easter. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here this morning. How about you? All right. I love Easter. It is my favorite Sunday of the year, even though you guys already know what we're going to talk about. It's never a big mystery. Like, I wonder what the topic will be this year. But Easter is the best because it's a story of good news. And in the middle of a world where so much of the news we see is anything but good, it's refreshing to change things up a little. Because let's be honest, there's almost nothing better than getting good news when all you're expecting is bad news. It's like wind in your sails. A few years ago, I was doing a wedding for a buddy of mine, and I wanted the ceremony to be meaningful and fun and go off without a hitch. And so I fine-tuned the whole thing, and I even planned out my morning the day of the wedding. I was going to get a little work done, then go to FedEx Kinko's and print off my script for the wedding because I was up in Minnesota and not here, and then get to the wedding an hour earlier than I needed to just to give myself time, hang out with friends, all that. And it was a great plan right up until the moment I got to FedEx and opened my computer. I'd been working on it all morning, but when I cracked it open to print off the entire wedding ceremony, it went black. Not like it's dead and I need to plug it in black, but like the screen is on and the computer is on and I can't see anything and there's just nothing, it's black. So I restarted it, black. Restarted again, black screen of death. And at that moment, I very calmly panicked. And when you're bald and you panic, some of the bald guys out here know it's just flop sweat everywhere. It's down your face, it's in your eyes. It gets real ugly real quick and I... Thankfully, remember, there was an Apple store a couple miles away, and so I made a Genius Bar appointment 90 minutes later. That was the soonest I could get in. Then I sat down at a Starbucks and thought, what if I have to wing it? A quick question for all the women in here, whether you are married, were married, or hope to be married. On a scale of 1 to 10, how excited would you be on your wedding day if right before the ceremony you asked the pastor, is everything ready to go? And he said, ah! (laughs) I don't 100% have all the details with me, but I'm going to wing it and it should be fine. Like, what else could I do? I was just sitting there like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And I finally got my computer to the help desk, and I was not excited because I'd looked up some stuff on my phone that said, if that happens, it's basically a goner. And so I hung my head and waited for the bad news, and the guy on the other end of the counter said, good news. And I don't remember a word he said after that. I wouldn't have understood the explanation anyway, but he did some stuff, and bam, the computer was on, printed off the wedding, and it went great. Like, good news is a powerful phrase in a broken world. And that's what the story of Jesus is, good news. You may have heard the word or the term gospel before, and that that word comes from a Greek word, euangelion, which literally translates good news. Also, it's fun to say. Everybody say euangelion with me. You ready? Euangelion. I told you it's fun. But there's a problem with it, and it's this. Good news is not something a whole lot of people in our world associate with the church or with Christianity or with Christians. I don't know, some of you are sitting in here today and you're looking for hope and you're searching for truth, but you're a little bit reluctant. You got a hand up toward the church because you've been hurt by one before. 
have this sense of rejection that you were too messed up and not good enough to be a part of it. And I know others of you are sitting in here and you got both feet on the brake. Your arms are crossed physically and spiritually. And the only reason you're here this morning is that your wife or girlfriend said, if you go to this thing so the kids can do the egg hunt, I will not make you go to my mother's house for brunch. And for real good choice, it's solid, I understand. But I want to invite everyone in the room to something today. I want to invite you to consider becoming a Christian even though you know some. Even though you used to work for one. Even though you grew up with a bunch of them and you're like, I am not going back to that. Even though you've had pain in your life that isn't fair or lost a parent who was a strong believer and wondered how a loving God could have possibly allowed that to happen or you had a professor or a podcaster completely rip your faith apart. Because here's the deal, whatever your story is, whatever your objections might be, whatever the hurdles are in your heart to following Jesus, I bet if you stood up here on this stage and shared them, you would not get shouted down. What you'd find is a room of people who are like, yeah, I get that. I understand. And to be clear, this invitation this morning is not an invitation to put your hope in the church. The church has a rocky, imperfect history. And it's not an invitation to put your hope in this church. We are just a bunch of messed up people trying to do life and faith together and love this city the best we can, but we don't always get it right. And it's not an invitation to put your faith in me. I will let you down. If you don't believe that, there's a blonde chick with too many kids around here somewhere who would be more than happy to provide you with plenty of real-life examples. And this isn't even an invitation to like put your faith in a certain stream or denomination of Christianity. It's just this idea that maybe, just maybe, if we're open to the message of Jesus, if we're willing to look at it with fresh eyes, to reconsider it, what we might find is that it's actually good news. I think for news to be good, it has to meet a few different qualifications. First, it has to be for us. If there's news out there in the world that has absolutely nothing to do with my life whatsoever, that's fine, and it might be good news for somebody, but it doesn't really count for me, right? Good news has to be for us. Second, it has to be true. It can sound really great, but if it's made up, if it is fake news, if it's just a bunch of alternate facts and fake news, then there's not a whole lot we can do with it. It has to be true. Good news can't be fake news. And third, it has to make a difference. It has to have some impact on the quality and direction of our lives. If it doesn't change anything about the way we're living, it's not really good news. So what I want to do this morning is answer three questions about Easter. Number one, is it for you? Number two, is it true? And number three, what difference does it make? And we're going to do that by looking at the story through the eyes of three different characters, through the lens of three common everyday people who are in the story who are a lot like you and me so that we can figure out what Easter actually means for us. So first question, is it for me? Do we count? Like, are we included in this whole Easter thing. If you have a, a Bible or a Bible handy this morning, you can crack it over to the book of John chapter 18. It's about three quarters of the way through, sandwiched between Luke and Acts. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. The words are going to be up on the screen or you can follow along in the revision app. And if you don't own a Bible or your kids don't, we have a whole bunch of them for all different ages back at that next steps table. They're free. We love it when they disappear. Please take one before you leave today. 
We're going to trace the Easter story this morning through the Gospel of John, which is this really cool, fascinating eyewitness account written by one of Jesus' disciples who wanted everybody to hear what he heard and see what he saw so they could know what he knew. And it's kind of funny because throughout the entire book, John refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Right? Everyone else gets called by their name. It's like Peter, Philip, Thomas, James, Jesus' favorite. And it's his book, so I guess he can do whatever he wants. We're going to start in, in verse 38 of chapter 18. And as we begin to look at this question of whether Easter is or isn't for us, I actually want to rewind the story a couple days to a morning before that first Easter morning. Jesus had been arrested by the religious leaders in Jerusalem and then they turned him over to the Roman authorities and the governor was a guy named Pontius Pilate who put Jesus on trial. And this is what went down. Pilate went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Okay, Barabbas is a weird character to have enter the story right here. Jesus is arrested. He's heading to the cross. It all kind of follows. And then this random dude almost interrupts the narrative. And we know almost nothing about him. He's not found in the Bible in any other place other than this moment in all four of the accounts of Jesus' life. And it's this fascinating day because Pilate, the governor, stands there and believes, I hold the fate of these two men in my hands. It's my tradition to release to the Jews on, on any of their holy days, like Passover, one of the prisoners who's on death row. And so he stands on this stage before the people, and on one side he's got Jesus, the Son of God, and on the other side he's got Barabbas, the thief and the murderer, this guy who led an insurrection. And he's like, all right, which one do you want? Which is a ridiculous question, right? There's absolutely no comparison between these two guys. Barabbas is a rightful prisoner. He's a rebel against Rome. He's a murderer. He's a bad man who deserves the chains and deserves the cross. Jesus deserves none of it. All he's ever done is heal and love. But Pilate says, which one do you want? And we know that the religious leaders who saw Jesus as a threat to their power and their money had bribed the crowd to say Barabbas. And so everyone's like, ah, Barabbas, yeah, yeah, yeah. give us Barabbas. And Pilate's like, that is not the answer that I was expecting, but okay. And he, he motions and the soldiers go and they, they unlock the chains. And as soon as Barabbas shakes off the shackles, he heads down the stairs of the platform and who's waiting down there for him? All his violent gangster friends, and he's smiling. He's thinking, man, these people love me. I don't even know who that other guy is, but wow, do they love me. And he hits the ground, and that's it. There's no evidence of any conscience in Barabbas. No indication that he turned around and looked at Jesus and said, thank you, man, you saved my life. He's just out. And the thing is, that's exactly what Jesus knew he was going to do. And yet Jesus still stood there silently and said, hey, this is okay. Let him have Barabbas. Even though Jesus understood very clearly that as soon as Barabbas went free, he was a dead man. He was going to be beaten and killed. And we look at this moment and you wonder, why? 
Why in the world did he just stand there, especially if he knew Barabbas wasn't going to care? I don't get it. And neither did his enemies. Everybody watching that moment was standing there thinking, if he's actually God, he's going to save himself. He'll like call down the armies of heaven to rescue him, and he'll, he'll get out of this somehow. And they decided that because he stood there and humbly faced his own death, that must mean he wasn't who he said he was. Because they didn't understand what Jesus understood. That our sin had created a gap between God and mankind, and the only way to bridge that gap was his death. That blood had to be shed to pay the price for our freedom. See, Jesus knew the Father had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people who set him free. No, it was the love of the God who created him. And as we read this story, it's important for every single one of us to realize who Barabbas really is. Me. Me. You, Barabbas is us, like hopelessly broken in chains because of our choices. And he's in this story because God wants to make sure we understand why, why Jesus took the beating and why Jesus endured the cross. God's like, I wanted Barabbas to go free. Yeah, but God, don't you understand? He's a bad person. God's like, yeah, I came to set bad people free. But God, didn't you know that he might not care, that he might walk away from you even after you set him free? And God's like, of course, I knew that, but I love him. See, God so loved the world that when we were bad people, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came to earth because we were broken. We were helpless and hopeless, shattered in our sin and cut off from God. And he looked at us and he said, I refuse to leave or abandon you in that space. I'm coming. And Jesus made it clear every single day of his life with every single word that he spoke that he came for everybody, the broken, the messed up, and the bad. Because he loved us too much to allow us to be defined any longer by our deepest mistakes. To allow our identity to be grounded in what we have done or in what's been done to us. He came to offer us a new identity grounded in what he did for us. And so he willingly stood there and gave his life in exchange for Barabbas' life. And he did the exact same thing for you. Is Easter for you? You better believe it is. No matter who you are or where you've been, Easter's for everybody. But is it true? Is this based on something that actually happened? Right? There's this universal consensus that a dude named Jesus lived and completely changed the world, even though he had no business whatsoever changing the world. I mean, he never traveled outside the Middle East. He never held any sort of a government position. He never wrote a book. He never commanded an army. His followers were relatively uneducated and ridiculously unimportant. And yet somehow he gave the world its most significant movement. It's crazy to the point of being inexplicable that this actually happened. But did it happen because of a story that was true? Did he really die? And more importantly, did he really rise again? Because it's not hard to wrap our minds around the idea that Rome executed a dude, right? They killed tons of people. But is he still dead or is he living? All of it hinges on that. And it did 2,000 years ago, too. We got to understand something. Jesus was really, really popular for a while, right up until the crucifixion. 
And then he wasn't. Everybody left. The only thing that mattered for all of them was whether he was risen or not, too. Because as soon as he got arrested, they were gone. It's good social media didn't exist back then. It would have been brutal for him to see the unfollows. Like Even his friends canceled him. Peter was maybe his closest confidant in the world. And as soon as he saw Jesus being led away by the soldiers, he was, he was out. He denied even knowing him. Once to a little girl. You get it with like a soldier. But one time Peter was like aren't you one of Jesus' friends? He's like, no. <laughs> Peter's lucky there wasn't social media too because she'd have been like, you're friends with him on Facebook? <laughs> like, no, no, he just looks similar. That's my friend Jesus. He's from Samaria. They pronounce it differently down there. I don't know, Jesus. Like everybody bailed for good reason. The crucifixion presented a real problem. The problem was Jesus had made too many claims about himself. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can't be the life if you're dead. That's science. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. You can't be the resurrection if your body's lying in a tomb. He said, I'm the Messiah. I am God. Come for you. But God can't be letting people kill God. And so even though Jesus had done big things and healed people, any hope anybody had that he was anything more than a great teacher and a good dude died right there with him. It was buried in that tomb. And then something happened. I mean, something happened. Because this disillusioned broken, scared collection of misfit nobodies who had recently quit following Jesus suddenly banded back together and rewrote the story of the human experience on this planet. Like there's no doubt that they shifted the future of the world and the Gospel of John tells us exactly why they did it and exactly what happened. Jesus rose again from the dead. That's right. And John goes to great lengths almost immediately to address any objections people might have to the idea that it actually happened. Because there were some people who didn't want to follow Jesus even after he rose. And there were some rumors that got started immediately. And the first one, and this one was made up by, by people who saw Jesus. They're like, oh my goodness, there he is. Whoo. Or they knew people who saw him. like, but he can't, dead people don't live. And so this idea started spreading that he never actually died. Like, if he's alive and he's walking around, he couldn't have actually died. He just passed out from the pain and the lack of oxygen on the cross. And then a few days in a damp, dark tomb, kind of just, woo, shot the life back into him. And he started walking again. So John 19, verse 28, he says, Later, knowing everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the sock of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it is given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look upon the one 
they have pierced. And John's like, all right, so you're trying to tell me he wasn't dead. But on the cross, they stabbed him in the side and a whole bunch of blood and water came out. And that's what happens after you die. That's biology. And a bunch of people saw it. But you're trying to say he never actually died. He was just hurt real bad. And then three days in a tomb was just such a refreshing thing that he hopped up, rolled away the stone all on his own and fought off the Roman soldiers who were guarding that tomb. You're trying to tell me Jesus is just Wolverine? That's the theory here, that he just regenerates and smokes bad guys? The Jesarine theory? This is a, come on, next. Like, ah, yeah, that's right, that's, all right, bad idea. The disciples stole the body and they hid it somewhere. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. First things first, why is she going to the tomb? She thinks he's in there. Also, some men buried him the first time and she wants to go fix what they did wrong and do it properly. That's 100% why Mary Magdalene's going to the tomb this day. She's like, oh my goodness, I gotta fix it, right? But then he doesn't show up and she runs and tells the disciples, he's not in there and they freak out. You know why they freaked out? They also thought he was still in there. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Sorry, I love this. We got to take a time out right here. John, in the middle of writing all the critical details of the most important story he has ever told, decides to say for generations and generations to hear, I'm faster than Peter. (laughs) If you're competitive, John is your disciple. I have a theory about this. I think Peter's actually faster than John, but John beat him this one time. And then what we know is that Peter had already been killed by the time John wrote down his gospel. And so he's sitting there and he's like, he can't even say anything about it. I'm putting it in there. <laughs> I think they still fight about it in heaven. And Peter's like, one time I got a rock in my sand. You had to write that stuff down. But I don't know if that's true. I hope it's true. But anyways, they show up and John got there first. And this is what they see. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, went inside. He saw and believed. John goes into a lot of detail here about the linen, like a weird amount. And why? He's trying to help us see that if this tomb got robbed by grave robbers, these were the most courteous thieves in history. They like knocked out Roman legionnaires, the greatest fighting force the world had ever seen, ran in there, grabbed the body, and they're like, oh, we cannot leave it like this. That bloody gauze is all, this is rude. Put them down. You're right. We'll do this first. Let's roll! Like, I was like, come on. I was there. It didn't look like a crime scene at all. Nothing about the details of this suggests that it's any sort of a fake story. And the reaction of John, the reaction of Peter, the reaction of the disciples reminds us nobody was expecting nobody. Nobody was expecting nobody. But they got to this tomb and there's nobody. And then Jesus shows up and he appears 
first to Mary Magdalene. She's sitting outside the tomb just bawling, weeping, and he comes up and he says, hey, why are you crying? And she's like, they took his body. I don't know where to find it. And he's like, uh, Mary. And she turns around. She's like, oh, my goodness. And she knows. But I got to tell you guys, if this is fake news, this is the absolute worst way to tell it. If you're trying to trick the world into believing some new movement you and your buddies came up with, there could not be a stupider, more idiotic way to tell the story than this. And here's why. I don't know if you caught this from the name, but Mary is a woman. It's true. It's true. And 2,000 years ago, in the ancient Near Eastern world, for the Jews and the Romans and the Greeks, women were not considered believable enough to even let them testify in court. They're like, oh, women have feelings. You can't trust them. And so the first witness to the resurrection is somebody who no one in that society would have even trusted to testify to something she saw in court. Like, if John's making it up, why wouldn't he be the hero? He's already gone to great lengths to tell us he's Jesus' favorite, he's pretty sure, and he beat Peter in a race one time, and he's like, nah, Mary can be the hero. And not only that, but there's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. There's Mary, Jesus' mom, there's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and then there's Mary Magdalene. She's the worst one. When Jesus met her, she was possessed by seven different demons. You guys, this is crazy, Mary. (laughs) It's crazy, Mary. Like the only reason, they they couldn't have found a less believable human on planet earth than her. The only reason to have her in this story as the first person Jesus showed up to is because that's how it happened. And then you start wondering, what was Jesus thinking? Couldn't he have picked a more believable person? But I can answer that. Mary is the exact reason Jesus came. Jesus picked Mary because he showed up and gave his life and conquered death for people exactly like her, people with a whole bunch of tears and rips and bumps and bruises in their stories. He's like, Mary's of the world. These are the people that I showed up for. And that's why he showed up to Mary first. She saw him and she ran and told the disciples, he's alive, he's alive. I saw Jesus, he's alive. And they looked at her and they're like, sure he did, Mary. You've seen a lot of things. (laughs) they didn't believe her at first either and then they saw it and they believed there's absolutely nothing about this story about the way that it's written or what happened after that suggests that it isn't the truth and I could stand up here and give you evidence all day long you could go home and you could read articles and you could read books about it and what you'd find is that for 2,000 years brilliant people have started with the premise that dead men do not live again and they've given the best of their efforts to proving that Jesus is dead and every last one of them has come up empty-handed with an empty tomb and some of them decide yeah well I still don't believe it even if I can't prove it he's got to be dead and others of them say wow the empty tomb changes everything like is this story true you can bet your life on it the eyewitnesses did i'm gonna close this morning by answering that third question like if it's really good news it's got to be life-changing so what does it change what difference does easter make for us and the simple answer is it changes everything It did for everybody who saw Jesus alive. You got Peter who had denied even knowing him to a little girl a few days earlier, now boldly risking his life to preach the gospel, the good news to the entire city of Jerusalem. You got James, the brother of Jesus, not one of the disciples of Jesus. James, his brother who did not believe and did not follow Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. I actually think that's fair because think about this. What would your brother have to do to convince you he's God? 
My brother's closer than me. He'd have to raise from the dead twice for me to believe he's God, all right? Like, James was like, nah, I don't think so. And then he saw his dead brother alive again, became one of the key leaders in the church and wrote part of the Bible. And every last one of these people, the men, women, and children, ultimately gave their lives to tell the world the good news about what they had seen. They were willing to die for it because they saw it and they knew everybody needed to know. But my favorite one is Thomas because Thomas reminds me of myself. Thomas was filled to the brim with fear and doubt. He just needed to see more than everybody else needed to see in order for him to believe. And at one point, all the other disciples were hanging out, and Thomas was so scared, he was hiding out. And then they sent word to him, they're like, man, Jesus is alive again. And John chapter 20, verse 25, records Thomas' response. He said to him, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, hey man, put your finger here in my hands, reach out your hand, put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God, the doubter believed. And Thomas, he's a lot like me. He's a lot like some of you. You want to believe, but you need a few more of the facts first. And then Thomas saw and believed. You know what he did with the rest of his life? He took the gospel all the way to India, and he started planting a whole bunch of churches there. And then people got mad at the explosion of this new gospel movement in India, and Thomas got arrested. They told him, hey, man, deny Jesus, and you can live. But if you won't deny him, we're going to kill you. And Thomas, the doubter the one who was crippled by fear, laughed at them and said, man, I cannot pretend I didn't see what I saw. I can't pretend I don't know what I know. I will never deny my faith in the one who gave his life and rose again so I could be free. And they killed him. They impaled him. Drove a stake right through him. But here's the thing. Death wasn't actually the end for Thomas. See, that's what the resurrection changes. If death isn't defeated then it actually reigns supreme on our planet. Then fear gets to win. Every brilliant philosopher for thousands and thousands of years has come to this conclusion, that if death is the end of our story, the only things that matter in this universe are fear and power. And we need to somehow come to grips with the idea that our lives are, as Thomas Hobbes said, nasty, brutish, and short. But if death has been defeated then the entire system of the world gets turned upside down. If Jesus defeated death, that means death doesn't get to write the final chapter of your story. It gets a chapter, but not the last chapter. And if death doesn't get the last chapter of your story, then you don't have to be defined by, for one more second by what you have done or what's been done to you. You can find your identity in what he did for you. And the good news is that's free. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Jesus already did. All you have to do is believe that his sacrifice on the cross counts for you. That he paid the penalty for your sins and your reconciliation. He unlocked death from the inside so that you can live. That's all you got to do is believe it. And I know there are people in the room right now who are desperate for that kind of hope, who are desperate to believe that death doesn't get the final chapter of their story and neither do their mistakes, who are desperate to live with the kind of meaning and, and purpose that finds our identity in something bigger and greater than ourselves, who are desperate to know this story is true, it's for you, and it changes everything. And if that's you this morning, 
If you feel the outrageous love of God tugging at your heart, if you need to live with that kind of hope and you're feeling like, man, I need to start a relationship with Jesus because I believe. Or maybe restart a relationship with Jesus because I believed and I've been running in another direction for a long time. I want you to know every last one of you, God is inviting you to say yes to him today. To say yes for the first time, to say yes for the first time in a long time, or to say yes for the first time since yesterday or this morning, to say yes continually again and again and again. Though I am broken and though my world is shattered, I believe that I am defined by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that's you and you want to say yes to that love this morning, I'm going to pray and I just want to invite you, all of you, to just repeat these words back to God in your heart. And if you pray that prayer for the first time today or the first time in a long time, there's a red card in your bulletin that says yes. And when the band comes back up as they're playing music or after the service, would you take that card back to that banner that says yes? We will trade you that card for a book, a Bible, and a set of information. Somebody's going to be back there who just wants to encourage you. And all I'm going to do with the information you give me is send you one email. That's it. The ball's in your court after that. But if you pray it for the first time or the first time in a long time, Fill out that card. I want to give you some resources. And all of us, like today, we celebrate because we know this is for us. And it's true. And it changes everything. Will you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for loving me so much that you were willing to trade your life for mine. Thank you for forgiveness and freedom. Thank you for beating death so that it doesn't win. I believe in you. I trust you. Let me live every moment of my life fully alive because I know that's true. Amen.